Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. Live constitutional conversations held at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. With the center still closed due to coronavirus, we're sharing another program held virtually via Zoom. Last week, our president, Jeffrey Rosen, was joined by Yuval Levin of the American Enterprise Institute. Levin discussed his new book, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Levin shared findings from his book describing a decline in American institutions, including those created by the Constitution, like Congress, the Presidency, and the Supreme Court, as well as the press, political parties, and others. He explored why that decline is happening, what its impacts might be, and how it can be fixed. So here's Jeff to get that conversation started. Yuval, it is wonderful to have you with us. Thanks very much. Really great to be with you. So glad to have this chance to discuss your very important new book. It's a illuminating and important argument about why trust in our institutions has fractured during this polarized time and how we can rebuild it. Why don't we begin by stating the nature of the problem? You note in the book that the statistics showing a decline in American institutions are overwhelming. Share with our friends some of those statistics. Yeah, we've basically lived in recent decades through an extraordinary collapse of confidence in our core institutions uh, from those that surround us directly, family even, but especially community, civil society, religious institutions, schools and universities, professional institutions, confidence in the health system, and certainly all the way up into our political institutions, especially at the national level, you've seen really a collapse of public confidence. Gallup has been asking Americans for almost 40 years now what they think about our core institutions and especially do you trust these institutions to do the right thing most of the time in the mid-1970s large majorities of americans said that they trusted especially these core civic and communal institutions but even the presidency even congress had majorities of americans saying they trusted them to do the right thing most of the time all of that now has collapsed into the low 20s and when it comes to congress public confidence is in the low teens last year it was 11 percent of americans uh said that they had confidence in congress when gallup asked them in 1973 when they first asked that question the number was 61 percent um even the presidency the year after richard nixon uh resigned in disgrace so in 1975 53 percent of americans said that they had confidence in the presidency Last year, 28% of Americans said they had confidence in the presidency. Even people who like the current occupant of the office will generally tell Gallup that they don't trust the institution as such. And you see that across the board in a way that just has to force you to ask, what has gone wrong with our institutions and with the public sense of how they're functioning? It's, it's a problem that has to be connected to the larger social crisis that we've clearly been living through uh, well before this public health crisis in America. Thanks so much for stating the problem so precisely. Well, there have been many theses offered up for what can explain the decline in trust in institutions, ranging from the rise of polarization to the decline of social capital and uh, religious faith. You account for all of those, but you offer up an especially distinctive, striking, and original thesis, which is that the core problem that transcends all the institutions is a transformation 
in our conceiving them not as formative of character, but as platforms for performative opportunities for self-promotion and display. Tell us more about that crucial Yeah, so to begin with, I think a lot of the explanations that have been offered are certainly part of the answer. Uh, it is true that the growing polarization of our politics, the fragmentation of American society generally from a very cohesive consensus uh, in, in the middle of the 20th century uh, has had to do with why Americans have lost confidence in institutions. It's also the case that competence has to do with confidence, and Americans have a sense that some of our institutions just don't function as well as they used to. Clearly, that's part of what's going on. There's also a sense that our institutions are not trustworthy in the sense they were, and that begins to take us toward the question of just what it is that institutions really do. On the one hand, every core institution serves some important purpose in society. Maybe it educates children, or it helps the poor, or it makes laws or enforces them, or it just provides a good or a service in the economy. But as it does that, every institution also forms the people within it to do that in a way that is reliable, that answers to some standard of integrity uh, that's connected to its purpose. And that helps us to trust that institution. And we can lose that trust, on the one hand, by the sense that the institution has become corrupted, that it, that it no longer uh, engenders that, that that's idea of integrity, that the people within it are just using it to advance their own ends. Now, that kind of corruption certainly isn't new. Uh, it's been with us forever. It's with us now. But because it isn't new, it doesn't really explain what's gone wrong in American confidence in institutions. I argue that there is another facet, another way in which Americans have lost the sense that our institutions are there to form trustworthy people. And that is that in one arena after another of American life, we've gone lately from thinking of institutions as formative, as, as molds of character and behavior, to thinking of them as performative, as platforms for the people inside them to show off, to show that they're part of the right team in our culture wars, to build their own brand, their own following. Uh, and whether in the professional world or in politics, in a lot of American civic and religious life too, you find that institutions now are used by individuals as platforms to build themselves up. And that can't help but take away the sense that the larger society has, that this institution is there for all of us, and that it forms people who we can trust will use their power responsibly. And as that sense has been lost, as, as every institution has come to be seen as just another stage to stand on and perform, the public has naturally lost its, its confidence in these institutions, its, its sense that they are there for us and they can be trusted to do the right thing. It's an extremely powerful thesis, and it links the decline in trust in institutions to the rise of social media and the decline of privacy and the rise of transparency. And I want to ask you, I want to run through each of the institutions you talk about, but just uh, broadly, you talk about the Constitution itself as creating institutions that were formative. The Constitutional Convention, of course, was famously secret. That was the main thing that happened in Philadelphia across from my virtual backdrop. I can see Independence Hall. If the Constitutional Convention had been uh, open to cameras and if the delegates had been able to tweet do you think it would have turned out as it did? Well, I'll tell you, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton certainly didn't think out it didn't think it would turn out as it did. They both said at different times in their lives that if the de deliberations had been open, they didn't think that a constitution would have emerged from that process. One of the arguments I make in the book is that transparency, important as it is, especially in public institutions, 
like the Congress, also comes with real costs, that institutions need internal lives. There need to be spaces where the people within these institutions can deliberate, can talk with one another. This is especially a problem in Congress, where the work of the institution is fundamentally deliberative work, not just in a highfalutin sense that we talk through ideas and come to uh, an understanding, but that what Congress does is make deals, and you cannot really negotiate and bargain in public. When you see people bargaining in public, you're watching a show. That's not what really happens. And as the deliberative spaces available to members of Congress have all been transformed into performative spaces, not only the floor of each house, but all committee action, uh, a huge amount of what members do all day is in front of cameras, it's become very, very difficult for them to be able to actually engage with one another. And we've gotten to a point where a huge amount of the actual legislative work that Congress does is done now in the only spaces that are still available as closed spaces, which are leadership offices at, you know, at midnight before the, the government shuts down. And that's where legislation tends to happen now. I think there is an argument for pushing back some, especially in committee work, against the absolute transparency that we've come to, and understanding that while members have to be responsible to the public for what they do, there also has to be room for them to work together, to negotiate, to bargain, and that does require an internal life to the institution. Otherwise, it, it really is a platform, and they're not wrong to think that all they're doing is putting on a show. I, I want to ask you uh, more about Congress. You begin with it, of course, as the Constitution does as well. And in a recent piece, you noted that Congress uh, barely deliberated the elements of the coronavirus relief bill because it has delegated so many of its activities and you call on legislators to uh, play an actual oversight role to actually authorize emergency actions as required rather than delegating them and more generally to be more engaged in legislation. Uh, using that recent bill as an example, tell us about the ways in which this performative instinct has led Congress not to do its job. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, Congress is the first and foremost example of how an institution is, is transformed by this move from mold to platform, where members of Congress uh, had to make their way up the system by doing legislative work for most of the history of the institution. If you wanted to be an effective member, a prominent member, uh, you needed to do your committee work, you needed to make your way up, you needed to bring pork home, you know, it wasn't all pretty, but it was all legislative work. The institution was able to form its members uh, and, and make them conform with its needs and its character. Uh, we've seen in more recent years that a lot of members now see Congress as a way to enable themselves to have a platform in the broad political theater that's, uh, that, that, that our national politics has become, Th they use Congress to build a following, a following on social media, to get better time slots on cable news or on talk radio. They understand themselves fundamentally as cultural performers, and they see themselves as commentators, as outsiders. You'll hear a member who's been there for 25 years say to, to the TV cameras, oh, you wouldn't believe what happens in these places. These people... Uh, you know, Congress never does this or that. And you just think to yourself, well, you are Congress. You're an insider. You're not an outsider. And I think in Congress in particular, you find that everybody wants to play the outsider. Everybody wants to be the critic. Everybody wants to be the commentator. Nobody wants to be the insider and take responsibility uh, for what happens in the institution. 
And so you see in the in the coronavirus bills, you know, in one sense, Congress stepped up and did its job. It passed three major pieces of legislation in the course of about a month in March. On the other hand, those pieces of legislation uh, were not really negotiated. They were not written through a legislative process. They were passed quickly without many members getting to know them. And then Congress just left town. And members understand their role as basically providing, you know, throwing money at the president. And then they spend their time on television and on and on Twitter commenting on the president's performance. Um, they, too, are outsiders observing rather than insiders acting. And I think that inclination to make yourself the outsider is, is part and parcel of this larger process of turning all institutions into performative stages. You see it in the presidency in a similar way. You know, the Constitution, the Constitution is a framework of, of several sorts, right? It's obviously a, a kind of legal framework. It's a policymaking framework. It's a political framework. But it's also an institutional framework. It created three distinct institutions. The separation of powers isn't just taking power and dividing it in three. It's taking power and dividing it into legislative, executive, and judicial, which are distinct and different in institutional terms. And I think when they all become stages for performance, you start to lose those distinctions and you lose sight of what each of their jobs really is. It is so important for you, as you stress, the division of the three branches, uh, each with its own institutional function. We have at the Constitution Center the very first draft of the Constitution written by James Wilson of Pennsylvania. And his very first words in the first draft were not the preamble that we know, but resolved that the government of the United States shall consist of the legislative, executive, and judicial branch. So it was a crucial point. Let me ask you about the media technologies that have made this performative instinct so widespread. Using Congress as an example, of course, there were TV cameras that people were trying to get onto starting in the 80s and 90s, but so, and social media has dramatically exacerbated it. Is this performative instinct mostly the fault of social media, or has it been going on for a while? Well, you know, I think these things feed on each other. So the the ways in which we use technologies for, for journalism and political media answer to what we want and what we expect and what we demand and what we enjoy. And so I, in, on the one hand, certainly it's true that the, the emergence of C-SPAN in the late 1970s and the Senate in the early 80s uh, ch dramatically changed the culture of the Congress. The, this, the, the mere presence of cameras did change the culture of the institution particularly when they started airing all committee work in the mid-1980s. Um, but, you know, that answered a pre-existing desire for transparency, for opening everything up, for uh, increasingly turning the work of Congress uh, in a more performative direction. Now, look, I should say there have always been grandstanders, right? Members of Congress have always wanted to be prominent. They've always wanted to be political celebrities in a sense. These are ambitious people. That's not new. It's just that the means available to them to rise to prominence have changed pretty dramatically in the last few decades. And certainly media and social media have had to do with that, the fragmentation of media so that members can find small niche audiences for themselves um, and can speak to exactly the people they want to speak to. What you find now, if you go to a congressional committee hearing, is you find individual members producing YouTube clips to use in campaigning. They're not talking to each other. They're not talking to the witnesses very much. They're talking to the camera and they want to be seen sitting at a committee hall and saying this or that. And that just makes it impossible for 
real deliberation and legislation and bargaining to happen because everybody's talking to an unseen audience outside the room and the institution doesn't look in on itself in the way that it's designed to do. That's a fascinating point about narrow casting and it suggests that it's not polarization that has caused the decline in institution but the availability of these polarizing and narrow casting media technologies that allows members to have uh, platforms to increasingly targeted bases. We have some questions about Congress uh, from our great friends in the audience, and I will ask, uh, Susan Connolly asks, what's your view on putting term limits on members of Congress? They have fiefdoms, and the founding fathers never intended legislators to be a full-time job. Well, you know, I would say if you look at the book, you'll find that I put a lot of premium on experience. I think members of Congress um, need to know their work. I think it takes time to get to know their work. The trouble is someone is going to have that experience and is going to be able to drive the train in Congress. I think it better be the members, because if it's not the members, then it's lobbyists and it's staff and it's other people that we wouldn't want with the power um, to control things. So I am a believer in allowing members to develop real experience, to become professional legislators. And I, and therefore, I'm not a friend of term limits. I think term limits, uh, you know, if you ask yourself, who are the real troublemakers in Congress, the, the people who we think are bad for the institution, they're generally not the members who have been there a very long time. They're generally the members who think of Congress as a stepping stone, now increasingly even to a media job. Um, to, to a spot on MSNBC or Fox News. Um, so I, I don't think that uh, term limits offer a solution to the sort of problem that Congress faces now. Uh, and we have two questions related to money in politics in Congress. David Bernstein, uh, who's been uh, joining our Zoom sessions and asking such great questions, asks, I hope you will address, Dr. Levin, how the increasing influence of money in politics has influenced the loss of trust in political institutions. And we also have a question from, I'm scrolling, and there's another wonderful money in politics question as well. So asking about your support or lack of it for campaign finance reform, John Broder says the performance of lens is very powerful, but isn't that a market response to the need for money to get reelected? Yeah, I, I think these issues are, are interconnected unavoidably. And so the question of money matters a lot. But the campaign finance reforms that we've seen starting in the 1970s I think have pushed in the same direction as the excessive push for transparency. Again, they were needed as transparency was. We need a more transparent Congress than we had in 1970, say, and we need more controls on money and politics. But I think we've gotten to a place now where the, the campaign finance laws we have have dramatically weakened the political parties and have, have turned those into platforms for performance too. If you think about what the parties do now, they're almost pure platforms. They don't really play a part in, in structuring and shaping our political culture. They don't allow for choices to be made about who will be on the ballot in ways that answer to a desire to build a broad coalition, which is what a national party would want to do. Uh, instead, now, those, those processes answer to people who want much narrower coalitions, much more driven by money, by smaller groups, outside groups that wield all the money and therefore a lot of the power. And I, I think that some of the campaign finance reforms that have been advanced since the 70s, and especially that have been advanced in this century, McCain-Feingold and others, uh, have backfired pretty dramatically and have created the, the, the kind of problem they were trying to solve. They've created a much more polarized politics by giving politicians 
an incentive to speak to small marginal groups at the at the edges of their constituencies rather than an incentive to build broad coalitions that uh, might appeal beyond a narrow constituency. And so I do want campaign finance reform, but I would want to see it push back against some of what we've seen in recent years and re-empower the parties. Rather than outside groups, it should be the two major political parties uh, getting back to a role that allows them to have more power over the selection of candidates um, and taking a little bit more control over the nature of our political process. Ironically, we're, we're in such partisan times because our parties are weak, not because they're strong. Thanks for that. Well, let's talk about the presidency. We have several questions about it, and that's up next in Article 2. In the book, you describe yourself as a conservative who's been a critic of the president, but you attribute to his performance the same performative pressures that are benighting the other branches. And, and the notion of the president as commentator on uh, government has been uh, much in view. Our specific questions from our uh, friends are Anna King asks, I never saw President tweet as much as President Trump. Why is that allowed? Can it be modified? Leanne Mott asks whether, uh, does Mr. Levin think lack of respect of our institutions is due to having a non-politician in the office of the presidency? Uh, so describe uh, yeah. the, the, the presidency and the performative impulse. Yeah, I think the same forces have acted on the presidency for some time. But as you'd find in the book, I'm especially concerned about this president uh, on, uh, in this respect, because I do think that Donald Trump is a distinctly performative attitude about his job. The way in which an institution shapes the people who fill it is ultimately, as I suggest, is it acts on them as a kind of mold. They pour themselves into it and take its shape in order to be effective through it. Um, but as we come to think of institutions not as molds but as platforms, it's just a place to stand and be seen and yell about the same things that everybody else is yelling about, um, it becomes much more difficult for a system like ours that requires people to work within its institutions to function at all. And Donald Trump has not been shaped by the institutions of our system of government. He's the first president we've had who was not a, a, a either a senior military officer before becoming president, or in most cases, of course, an elected official uh, or other government official at a very high level. President Trump has not been any of those things before. What he's been is basically a performer. Um, he's run a, a family real estate business and then for most of his life uh, has played the part of a real estate magnate in our popular culture. And he's risen to the presidency as another performance in that role. He sees it as a stage, treats it as a stage. You very often find him not only tweeting, but tweeting at his own administration, complaining about what the Department of Justice is doing or something like that. And you just think to yourself, well, they work for you. You should think about how to affect what they do by understanding that you're the insider here. You're not the outsider. Um, and ultimately, the answer to you and it's your responsibility. I think the president tries to evade responsibility and avoid being the insider. But I, it, it strikes me that it's not quite that conscious. I think he just is a performer. He sees himself as playing a role here, as channeling public sentiment and as a commentator in chief and just doesn't have the sense of the job that an insider would have. Now, there's downsides to being an insider, right? It's not, it's not by coincidence that insider is generally used as a term of derision. But the argument I make in this book is that we're in a moment now when we need more insiders. We need more people who are willing to take responsibility and say, this role I have gives me an obligation, gives me a, a set of responsibilities. 
And the president is an example of what happens when people with serious authority and real power don't behave that way. Although Barack Obama was the first president to tweet, it's hard to imagine either President Obama or Mitt Romney had he won behaving in precisely the same performative way. If uh, an institutionalist does win the presidency, say Joe Biden or uh, Mitt Romney in the future, what would it take to avoid these performative temptations and to restore an institutional mindset? Yeah, I mean, you know, it wouldn't be easy. I think the incentives are very strong in this direction. Um, and there's a way in which our political culture has come to expect it. But I think th- the answer to that question is is the same in our political institutions as in many other institutions throughout our society, which is people have to ask themselves what is now the great unasked question of American life, which is given my role here, how should I behave? Given that I'm president or a member of Congress or an employer or a worker or a pastor or a congregant, a neighbor, given that, what should I do in this situation where I face a choice? I think the, the, the people who drive us most crazy now in American life are the people who seem to never ask that question in moments of decision. And the people who we just sort of quietly respect and take seriously are people who seem always to ask that question before they make a major choice. And so a small step that really each of us could take, but that especially we should expect people in positions of power and authority to take, is to ask that question in a moment of decision. There are a lot of ways in which a president in his day-to-day life, I used to work for a president, I worked for President Bush for several years. When you, when you deal with the kinds of decisions that a president has to deal with, asking yourself, given the responsibility I have here, how should I think about this, can make an enormous difference in how you behave, in what you say, and when you watch our president now going through his daily work, it's just painfully evident that that question does not arise. Was that the question about role that Mitt Romney was asking when he said, my role as a senator requires me to separate my political from my constitutional views and impeachment? Yeah, you know, in some ways, I think so. At the very least, he was asking that question. He was asking himself, what's my job here? In this situation, what does the institution require of me? I think that is the question that an institutionalist asks. It's not the only question you should ask. It's not the only thing that matters, but it's the one we've been failing to ask. And I think a lot of the problems we've confronted in recent years that have seemed so distinct and strange have been a function of a failure to ask that kind of question. Uh, Let's talk about the courts. You say they're doing better than the president and Congress, but nevertheless, you detect a certain performative instinct in the attention-seeking dissenting opinions and some of the majorities of both the originalist and the uh, more uh, uh, living constitutionalist justices who seem to be writing for an audience that's not uh, their colleagues, but for the attention of their base. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think that's right. On the whole, judges have done better. I think the judiciary, in a sense, naturally has much more of a sense of itself as an institution, um, as having a constrained role to play, because the role of the judge is so constrained. The judge is not a politician, um, and th- there's just a sense in which being a judge is being a certain human type, and there are things a judge wouldn't do. And I think whatever people's political, uh, judicial philosophy might be, they, ha- they live with that sense. They're literally made to wear a black robe that just kind of forces you to think, now I'm playing this different part in our society, and there are obligations I have. So the courts have resisted. Uh, some elements of transparency that have done harm in Congress. I think the courts have kept a sense of themselves as having a distinct and constrained role to play. But you do see judges increasingly um, 
trying to play a part in our culture war. And I, again, I don't think that's quite a function of, of judicial philosophy either. Um, you see that with originalist judges who are writing for an audience, um, you know, trying to sort of play to a crowd. You, you see it with uh, more progressive judges who express themselves on culture war questions, who use judicial opinions to make it clear that they have this view or that view on the underlying substantive question. Uh, and so, you know, it's very hard to resist these temptations. And our political moment really calls on judges in a certain way to, to play the part of that serious outsider who looks down on these problems. And it's very hard for judges to resist that. But I would say judges have done a much better job of resisting that than the rest of our political system. Stacy Garber asked, how do you feel about the decision to broadcast Supreme Court oral arguments live? Their decision making is done in secret, but plenty of people try to predict outcomes by listening to the question. Does this lead to a push for recording their conference? Yeah, I, I, I don't love the idea, but this is an emergency. And, you know, in a way, they're doing this in order to even really enable themselves to do their own work. Um, it's understood that this is temporary. I hope it is temporary. Um, you know, I, I think the, the Supreme Court has been right all these years to resist cameras in the courtroom and to resist live uh, broadcasting of oral arguments. It is important that there be these interior spaces. You know, oral arguments are not private exactly. You can go and listen to them, um, but they're also not public exactly. And, and so, you know, I, I think keeping that kind of, of middle space and especially, of course, making sure that actual deliberation among the justices happens in private um, is essential to the work of the institution. Let me ask you what you think of this experiment, a great experiment, I think, that the Constitution Center is going to launch. So after the oral arguments take place, they're at 11 o'clock uh, in six days in May, we're going to convene an advocate from both sides of the case who signed the brief, and we'll spend an hour, and I'll ask them questions and ask them to explain what's just happened in the oral argument and to tease out the arguments for the education of the public. It's an experiment because some of these cases are very technical, even for lawyers like uh, me and my colleagues. So we'll have to do a lot of homework, too. But the thought is that that might be a useful function in public education. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a nice way to make use of the fact that they're allowing these to be uh, broadcast this way. Now, oral arguments eventually become public anyway, and so it's always been possible to use them in this educational way. I, I think that, that there are there is a way to balance these things. There are ways to draw lines that don't undermine the character of the institution, and in fact, that allow oral arguments to serve as foundations for educational work like this. Um, I think that's great. The, 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 what, what worries me are institutional reforms that might change the character of the relationship between the institution and the people within it. And I think that the, the, the justices of the Supreme Court have a very firm sense of what the institution is. My sense is that all nine of them do. Certainly the chief does. Um, and, you know, I think they'll be pretty good guardians of, of that character, uh, even in, in this unusual situation. A powerful argument against cameras in the courtroom for the sake of the institution. The sociologist uh, Weber, I think, said that uh, mystery requires authority, and that's why he defended black robes and opacity. Yeah. Is that right when it comes not only to the Supreme Court, but to the other institutions as well? Yeah, I, I think there's something to that. Um, you know, that's that's almost said in sort of dark tones, right? But um, I, I, I think that, that it, we have to understand that that's important not only for outsiders, so that people sort of keep this sense of awe about the institution. I actually don't think that's the key. I think the key is that people within the institution take it seriously when it has these forms. 
and when it has this internal life. I think wearing the robe is done for the judges, uh, much more than for the public or even for uh, the lawyers or the people in the courtroom. It gives you a sense of responsibility, a sense of the seriousness of purpose that's required of the job. And I, I think the same about restraining and restricting these uh, arguments from becoming just another TV show. Um, they're not a TV show. They, they have a certain part to play in the life of our system of government. And, you know, the, the forms around them matter a lot. That's true in every institution. Well, speaking of TV shows, you have some powerful insights about journalism, which has certainly been utterly transformed since I started as a journalist in the early mists of the 1990s. To what degree has the rise of disaggregating technologies like Twitter and Facebook, which have given everyone a platform to media, threatened trust in, in the great journalistic institutions and transformed public discourse for the worse? Yeah, the, the, the media is, is an example in the book because I think it shows us precisely this transformation from, from mold to platform. I, I look at the media in the context of talking about the professions as institutions. The professions are essential formative institutions. They shape people by providing a process, uh, a set of standards, a set of obligations that draw a distinction between a professional and an amateur. And so journalism is an example of this because journalism, a little bit like, like natural science, defines itself by a method, a method of verification, a set of standards, of requirements. You don't run a story without two sources. You, you know, everything is run through editors and fact checkers. And that process is there to help the public have some sense that what they're getting might be more reliable than just a rumor. Um, and that that process, that working within the institution before you face out and uh, put a product before the world is absolutely essential to what a lot of our professions do. What you find today in political journalism, in elite political journalism, is a lot of individual reporters taking themselves out of those institutional frameworks and putting themselves on platforms as individuals, building their own brand. Uh, you'd find them on Twitter right now just actively blurring the line between their professional journalistic work and their personal opinion and personality. Um, you can see why they do it. They get a lot of followers that way, and those followers are good for their institutions too. They, they read their writing in the, in the Times and the Post and elsewhere. But by blurring that line, they just systematically shred the capacity of the public to trust modern journalism. It becomes very, very hard to know if what we're seeing really has gone through that process that defines journalism or whether it's just another person's opinion. And it is very performative. It takes people, um, again, out of that role and puts them on a stage. I think that it has had a lot to do with the loss of the public's confidence in institutions. But it's also itself a function of very powerful financial incentives and cultural incentives that are extremely hard to resist. If, if I ran the New York Times, I would not want to allow my reporters to be on Twitter at all. Twitter is awful for journalism. And yet, I, I can't imagine I would really do that because Twitter is great for getting readers. And somewhere there's got to be some balance. Uh, I don't think we've found it. It changes the nature of the journalism as well. I experienced when I was writing lots and friends have experienced the fear of disappointing the crowd. If you express an opinion that's slightly more moderate than your most mobilized base, you'll get hammered on Twitter. So we're, it's polarizing journalism too. Yeah, it's an interesting thing about social media where you would think that it would allow for a lot more niches, a lot more expressiveness, a lot more difference. But social media actually empowers peer pressure in extremely powerful ways. 
both in these broad senses where a, a journalist with a national audience will just get hammered by thousands of people for seeming to be on the wrong side of an issue, but even within sort of personal friend networks or in the lives of American teenagers now, social media is an enormously powerful transmitter of peer pressure uh, and actually, I think, acts to constrain the range of, of permissible views rather than to allow for more diversity of expression. I want to ask you about some other American institutions in a moment, but we have a great question from Adam Solomon. To what degree is declining trust in institutions a specifically American problem or a global one? There was a really interesting piece in the New York Times this morning about how Sweden did not have a quarantine but has had similar COVID infection rates because of social trust and people trusted each other not to get too close in public and they maintained sensible boundaries and that was a reflection of their broader trust. So to what degree is the phenomenon you're describing? Yeah, you know, in some ways, Sweden is more the outlier than the United States. There certainly is a, a global pattern that, we're, that we do fall into to some extent, um, a pattern of, of increasingly populist politics that has come along with increasing distrust in core institutions. It varies across societies, but certainly if you compare the United States to most of Europe, especially Southern Europe, there's enormous distrust in government. It, it, the Italians and the Spanish have less trust in government than we do, which is not easy to do. Um, and, and so you find in a lot of societies now in, in, the, in the 21st century, um, a growing mistrust of, of core institutions. I think there are some elements of the story, though, that are distinctly American. The United States uh, has always had a suspicion of mediating institutions in its kind of core DNA. Even though we are institution builders as Americans, the story that Tocqueville tells, there's a lot of truth to it. You know, he has this joke that if you get four Americans together that elect a treasurer, there's some truth to that. We tend to organize. It's um, a good Tocqueville joke. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, um, American culture is rooted in a kind of dissenting Protestantism. We have always identified authenticity with directness, with unmediated access. And that means we've always had some suspicion of mediating institutions. And you can find a pattern in our society of a kind of back and forth between enormous cohesion and social trust um, and periods of extremely low social trust and kind of breakdown of institutions. You find that in the 19th century, uh, and we have seen that, that mistrust grow in the course of the second half of the 20th century, but especially in our time, uh, this kind of populist politics of, of no confidence in our, governing, in our governing institutions, it's a little like where the United States was in the, the, the first third or so of the 19th century. Um, it didn't turn out great, and um, you know, it wasn't easy to get out of. But it is, in some respects, a distinctly American phenomenon. There are certainly elements of it that are. Tocqueville identified two restraining factors that he hoped would persuade Americans to continue to moderate their unruly passions and to serve the common good in the face of the relentless search for the accumulation of wealth. The first was the spirit of religion, and the second, of course, uh, he called self-interest properly understood, where people would come to understand that their own interests were best served by restraining their immediate hedonistic impulses to serve the common good. Why has that second idea of self-interest, properly understood, failed to do the restraining work Tocqueville hoped? Well, you know, I think we've lived through a period now of a number of decades, maybe a half century or more, um, of growing and intensifying individualism in American cultural life. We came, the United States came out of the Second World War 
after a period of mobilization for the war, for the depression, you might even think of the First World War as building up this, um, came out of that period as a very, very cohesive society with a lot of self-confidence and a lot of trust in its institutions, really unusual levels of trust, a sense that our, our large government, along with big business and big labor, would be able to just run things effectively. But almost from that moment at the end of the Second World War, we've been liberalizing away from that intense cohesion. On the one hand, liberalizing the economy, um, and so reducing the government's control over it and increasingly thinking about it in individualistic terms. Uh, the right has tended to like that, the left less so. On the other hand, liberalizing the culture, uh, greater diversity, greater difference, all these forces that told all Americans to be like everybody else in the first half of the 20th century then started telling all Americans to be like themselves. And this cultural liberalism, which the left has liked more than the right, I think is just the opposite side of that same coin. And it has meant that our individualism has been pretty radical, pretty extreme as we've entered the 21st century. Uh, it's been harder for us to see the ways in which ultimately we are best served by thinking of ourselves as part of a larger whole. But I do think <clears throat> that in our politics now, um, in the 21st century, especially in the last few years, we've seen a turn in the direction of a desire for solidarity. The left and the right both are looking for ways of advancing solidarity alongside liberty. Uh, both still want to be the party of liberty and define it in their own way. But I think on the left, you increasingly find that there's a desire for thinking of ourselves as part of a larger whole. On the right, you see it expressed as a kind of nationalism, a sense of, uh, of, of, of national distinction and purpose. On the left, it has more to do with identity politics and maybe a kind of turn towards the language of socialism, though I think not quite the ideas of socialism. Both of these, it seems to me, are, are pretty ugly forms of solidarity for the moment, but they both suggest an openness to the idea that we cannot just understand ourselves as individuals alone. And I think that the next phase of our politics, defined by that turn, but also by this, by this pandemic, which will transform our society in some important ways, is going to have its eye on solidarity to a much greater degree than what we've seen in the last few decades. I'll ask you what that healthy uh, liberal solidarity might look like. But first note that you offer up both religious institutions and universities as an examples of the more unhealthy solidarity on the right and the left. The religious institutions, authorities are using churches as personal brand platforms and are becoming uh, politically partisan in ways inconsistent with uh, some of their doctrine. And on universities, the impulse for identity politics has turned students to embrace a kind of moralism that is at odds with liberalism in ways that you deplore. Maybe tell us a little bit about both of those phenomena. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an uncomfortable kind of mirror image of one and the other that's uncomfortable for everybody on all sides, where what's happening in American religion um, is not unlike what's happening in the American Academy. In both cases, you've got institutions that are intended to form people without question. Both In both cases, the university is an educational institution. It is surely there to form a portion of the rising generation. Uh, American religious institutions are there to shape our souls, to form human beings. But both have increasingly become platforms for political performance art. They've both become places that are used by the people within them to stand and show their affiliation with one party or another, to stand and yell about the culture war. And, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the kind of distortions that you find in both institutions could 
could really teach each side a little bit about its own faults. Um, people on the right who complain about the university should look carefully at what's happening in American religion and vice versa with people on the left who complain about churches becoming active in, in Republican politics. These are both essential sets of institutions for a free society. And I think it is very dangerous that they're just becoming platforms for political performance. We've got plenty of platforms for politics. We don't have nearly enough formative institutions that shape the intellectual life and the moral and spiritual life of our, of our free society. Well, we have 10 minutes left and many questions, including, of course, about reforms and solutions. Uh, Rod Kavanaugh asks, what are the three most important reforms that you would recommend? Yeah. You know, a book like this often will end with a chapter where the writer, having defined this big, broad problem, then says that, you know, it, conveniently, it turns out that what I've always wanted out of politics is what it would take to fix this problem. Uh, th this book doesn't have a chapter like that, because I think that the, the biggest challenge we face in dealing with the problems I describe is that in order for these institutions to be reformed, the people within them would have to see the need for those reforms. And that means that this change has to start with a change of mindset. So that the first step, the core step, really does have to be forcing ourselves to ask that unasked question, given my role here, how should I behave? To make that question part of the life of every one of the institutions that we are part of. And we all have roles to play in some set of institutions. We can help that happen better. Beyond that, I certainly do look at some specific reforms of institutions uh, in Congress, in particular, I think there are ways that the institution could be changed, that its, uh, th th that its structures and processes could be changed, the budget process in particular. I'm a former House Budget Committee staffer, so I detest the budget process the way all us former budget staffers do, but I think it really has terribly distorted the work of the Congress. And there are ways to think institutionally, to ask yourself, what kinds of incentives do you want to put in front of new members of Congress? And how do we do that by changing the work of this institution? I'm of the view that Congress is actually approaching a phase of reform, that its members are increasingly dissatisfied almost with their standard of living as members of Congress. They don't like it. They don't like the work. They don't like the kinds of pressures they're under. And sooner or later, they're going to figure out that they can do something about it. Um, and so... I'm part of a little community in Washington that is trying to prepare for that moment, left and right, by thinking about what core institutional reforms could look like in Congress. There's been a lot of interesting work on that front. Um, and, you know, ultimately what I argue for, really, in a, in a way, in each of the chapters of the book, is that all of our institutions, each of our institutions, needs a party of the institution within it. People who think of themselves as having the institution's interests at heart not broader cultural or political interests, but the institution's core interest. You badly need that in the university where putting aside political differences, there's a better way to run an educational institution and especially to administer it. I think university administration is at the core of what's gone wrong on campus. Um, you badly need that in American religious life. And so I think these ways of thinking about how to approach reforms are more of what I offer. I don't have a 10-point agenda here because I think this requires a cultural change that would precede that kind of agenda. But wouldn't the cultural change be difficult in light of the social media platforms that create the incentive for performance in the first place? No question about it. I, but there too, I think there is a growing sense that we are uncomfortable with, with what social media makes us into. Um, you know, we do it uh, and, and there are a lot of incentives and reasons to do it. But I think people increasingly feel like they don't like themselves on Twitter. Um, they're not happy with the way they spend their time on Facebook. 
And again, sooner or later, we're going to realize there's something we can do about that. We have consumer power up to a point, uh, and we also just have choices. And so I think there will be some niches that allow us to pursue different ways of being on social media. We're new to social media. We're still learning how to use it. And I would say our experience with it so far on the whole has been pretty destructive. Um, and you know, we're not just going to keep doing that. I, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I hire people out of college every year as assistant editors at the journal that I run, National Affairs. And over the 10 years that I've been doing that, I've noticed people are get, have gotten much better at presenting a presentable form of themselves on social media, where we would look at their, at their feeds uh, when we were hiring 10 years ago, you'd find things that you would never want a prospective employer to see of you. That just doesn't happen anymore. And it's not because they've become better human beings. It's because they've learned how to live on social media in ways that allow them to have some more forms and formalities around themselves. Maybe they just have you know, more than one, uh, m m more than one uh, Facebook profile. I don't care what it is. The fact that they want to be more careful about that is a good sign. And I think over time, we're going to learn how to be better people on social media. It sounds like the founder's notion uh, derived from the Stoics that virtue is its own reward and that citizens will come to realize that it's in their interest to restrain themselves and to serve others. Do you think that's really realistic? Well, I think it's really rooted in a sense that virtue is a habit. Um, this, this book, the argument of the book is a very Aristotelian argument. It basically says, in order to be a better person, you should first and foremost behave as though you were a better person. And don't worry if you're just pretending. Eventually, that's how you become a better person. And so I, I think it's very important how we behave, what kinds of forms and formalities we insist on and we hold ourselves to, um, how we think about the roles we have, how we think about the responsibilities and obligations we have. So I, I don't have a Pollyannish notion that people are just going to gravitate to virtue, but I do think that we are dissatisfied with the status quo, that one thing we can say about Americans right now that they haven't been happy with the way things are for some time. And that means that there could be an opening to offering some paths to improvement that are plausible and realistic, don't require a dramatic social revolution, but ask something of each of us that we might be able to do and might even enjoy doing. Several questioners are asking for some more specific examples, say for Congress, because you did say you're studying yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So for example, I, I think that the, the nature of the budget process now in Congress um, is very counterproductive. It encourages this kind of performative politics because the budget process, which was created in the middle of the 1970s at a time when both parties assumed that the Democrats would always run Congress and Republicans would often hold the presidency, um, the budget process was designed in a way that could enable Congress to consolidate its work and compete with the president on a level playing field. That means that the budget process that dominates Congress's work basically now consists of a big vision document at the beginning of the year, a lot of fighting about nonsense all year, and then a massive piece of legislation that no one is involved in writing except a few leadership staff that everybody votes up or down on at the end of the year. And that's not good for anybody. If you break that process up into much smaller steps, much smaller pieces, if you break the wall between authorization and appropriation in Congress so that authorizing measures actually spend money and therefore actually matter, um, you'd create very powerful incentives for members to take their legislative work much more seriously because it would give them much more of an opportunity to do something, to stand out for legislating rather than just to stand out for performing. And by and the, the kind of gradual change of incentives that you could engender that way, I think could 
do a lot to help Congress focus on its core work again. So that kind of reform, or, uh, I think of it as a Madisonian reform that takes incentives seriously, that begins from the premise of what the institution is supposed to be. I think that's the way to think about changing institutions. It is indeed Madisonian. And as you note in the book, Madison's central goal in the Constitution was to slow down deliberation so that uh, sober reason could prevail over impetuous passion. But given the current structure in Congress now, how likely is it that this Congress would adopt that reform? Yeah. Well, again, I, I, I take as a cause for optimism what most people looking at Congress take as a cause for pessimism, which is everybody thinks Congress is broken. The fact that everybody thinks it's broken, including a lot of members, suggests to me that there may be more openness than usual for making some changes in the way Congress works. Now, I'm not, I don't think this is going to happen next year. Um, and, you know, I don't think that it's going to be a mass movement. And I don't think that it's going to be where most members are in the near term. But there are some hopeful signs. There are members now who are starting to think about the way the institution works and to ask themselves how this could be done better. What, I, what makes me optimistic, or at least hopeful, is that a lot of those members are younger um, <clears throat> and they are not inclined to just take for granted the way that Congress has come to work in recent decades. Congress is designed for a system in which there is a, a, an, endura an enduring majority party and a minority party. Congress has not had that situation in more than 30 years now. Control has gone back and forth from Republicans and Democrats constantly. Every election raises the prospect of a change of control and the institution is not built for that. It needs to change itself. It needs to take reality seriously and ask itself, what would it take now for a serious legislative institution to do its work well? It's time for closing thoughts. And Robert Scully's question is a great opportunity for them. Uh, he asks, Payne's utopian society based on common sense seems in ascendance over Burke's mediating institutions because institutions are seen as elitist rather than little bands that can speak for the people. Do you really think, how optimistic are you that we can forge a Burkean future for church, academia, publishers, and the Congress? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. I, I'm not an optimist exactly because I am a Burkean. I'm a conservative. I have low expectations. Um, but I am hopeful. And hope is different from optimism. Optimism is just the expectation that good things will happen. And that strikes me as silly. But hope is a belief in the possibility that good things are imaginable, that good things are possible if we rise to the challenge. Hope drives you to act, whereas optimism makes you passive. I think this is a time to act. The reason the book is called A Time to Build is that I think we have opportunities now and needs to be met. Um, and that, these, that that could be done in a framework that looks a lot more like a, a, a sort of Burkean approach to institutions. It's true, institutions are often seen as elitist, but actually, institutions are the way that we constrain our elites. They're the ways that we can make demands of them and say, in order to have this authority, you have to exercise this responsibility. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we've come to a place where we've lost the sense that we can make these demands of our elites. An elite that's formed by meritocracy doesn't hold itself to that kind of standard. And I think alongside meritocracy, we need a recommitment to institutionalism that says, if you want this power, this is the role you need to play in society. And to make that kind of demand is one way to move down that path uh, that I do think of as a kind of Burkean path. So thanks for the question. 
And thank you so much, Yuval Levin, for a illuminating and rich conversation about the crucially important task of rebuilding trust in institutions. Friends, in this time of virtual learning, it is so important for all of us to read and learn. So please buy or download Yuval Levin's new book, A Time to Build, and learn from it. And please continue to tune into these National Constitution Center convenings, including to our live uh, coverage of the Supreme Court oral arguments in May. Yuval Levin, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thanks, friends. Uh, hope to see you all again very soon. Thank you. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and me, Jackie McDermott, and produced by Tanea Tauber and me. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please tune in to our virtual programs. You can check out the schedule of upcoming programs and register for them at constitutioncenter.org debate. That way you can join them live from any device. Or you can watch the programs after the fact in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution or on our YouTube channel. Or as always, you can listen to the programs right here on this podcast. So please join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.